0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another BTR podcast. We're going to be talking some footy today with our special guest joining us, um, soccer or football, wherever you are around the world. Um, So let me introduce him. He's the co-host of the Northern Football Podcast, along with Ben Steiner and Alexander Ganje-Ruzic. I hope I didn't butcher that. Um, Soccer journalist and analyst for Sportsnet and OneSoccer. And he was also part of the Canadian men's national team's coaching staff as a performance analyst. We're here joined by Peter Galindo.
1: Hey Peter, how's it going? Good guys, thank you. And by the way, you didn't butcher that name at all. That's actually one of the better pronunciations of Alex's name that I've heard. So well done. For sure, yeah, Good
0: job, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how's it going? How was um, Before we get into the uh, questions and all that, how was uh, the experience covering gold, uh, being part of the staff at the Gold Cup? And I know you were,
1: I think, earlier in the year as well, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. In March, yeah, um, it was. I mean just like the March experience, just unbelievable. Um, you you kind of have to take a step back at times to almost realize this is a reality. This is what I'm doing every day. I'm waking up every day and getting to to do this for a living. Um, it's There's really nothing more that can drive you, I think, like trying to get that result does. I mean, I remember after we drew the opening game against Guadalupe, Um, we were up until maybe midnight, 1230, something around there after the game. And then I woke up just because I was just so motivated and hungry to, to move on to the Guatemala game and start working on that. I was up at six the next morning, clipping stuff, getting stuff ready for the coaches and, and just immediately messaging them being like, listen, is there anything you need me to do today? I'm I'm ready to go. It's, it, it was unbelievable. A lot of work and a lot of sleepless nights at times, but by the time it was, uh, finished i i think that it was probably one of the top experiences of my life and i'll, I'll remember it forever and, and i know that a lot of the coaching staff felt the same way they really enjoyed that camp just having the different players in and getting to to give them those experiences so many first caps for so many players and and kind of getting a chance to look at some guys who might be able to help on the road to 2026 as well so yeah an, an unbelievable experience for sure
0: so would you rather be a journalist then or you stick with the
1: national team if you can <laughs> <laughs> uh I'm probably focusing more on on the role I'm in now, I think performance analyst and just pursuing something within the game. It's always something I've kind of wanted to do, I think, uh, especially the last few years. I've, it's sort of come through in the work that I've done in journalism, just with the more analytical stuff, the tactical stuff, working in analytics and all that. Um and it's mostly just because nothing against journalism. I did enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I'm still going to do the odd piece here and there. But There's just something about working with a team, working on the inside and, and, and getting to, to be part of an organization or a team that, that can, you know, directly influence a result. And the the more I've kind of gotten a taste of it, the more I've really enjoyed it. So I'm going to try to keep doing that now that John has left the national team, we'll obviously see what, what happens, um, whether that futures with the national team, whether that futures with, you know, somewhere else we'll see, but, um, I'm definitely excited to see what's in store. That's for sure.
2: Um, before we get started, um, you are Canadian. We are Canadian. and uh, But your podcast is called Northern Football Podcast. So do you say football mm-hmm. or soccer? What is it?
1: <laughs> Depends who I'm speaking to. Mostly soccer, because I am speaking yeah. to Canadians. But um, I have a lot of, because my, my partner's Irish. So because of her, I've kind of started calling it football because we've gotten to meet more Irish people who call it football. I, I speak to my... Um, family in Peru a lot they call it football that was kind of part of the inspiration of the name of the podcast northern football because of my Peruvian roots even though I am Canadian I am also part Latino as well so I kind of wanted to work that into the name so it's kind of it kind of flows both ways I'm sure you guys are the same depending on who you speak to and, and that's kind of yeah. what makes it nice yeah. yeah
0: all right so let's get right into this Um, before we get into any like Direct stuff like you alluded to, John, no longer being the head coach for Canada. And the woman's obviously up to nothing on Jamaica. Before we get into all that, let's get into the big picture. Um, So a quick timeline for everybody. Uh, the woman won the Olympics. They won gold in Tokyo. And then what happened was uh, the men had a great qualifiers, had a good run with the Ocho. And then that's when stuff started going downhill with the st- players going on strike um, financial causes, um, you know, stuff like that with CSB, CSB Canada soccer business on um, to a disappointing result in the world cup and the gold cup and the nation's league final, uh, for the men's, the woman obviously coming off a very disappointing, um, world cup appearance and the she believes cup, which I know was filled with distractions. So for, we, like I said, we kind of listen to you. So we kind of have a general escape of people that may be watching. And obviously even for us that we don't know, um, can you explain what is happening behind the scenes at Canada Soccer causing all these issues, like I said, the players on strike, the financial concerns, because we heard bankruptcy, um, and what, what's the relationship between Canada Soccer and Canada Soccer business?
1: I, I do think that financially, things are, at the very least, they're looking at things a bit more responsibly now. That seems to be the case, right? And even though it's not necessarily leading to things like September Friendlies or giving John the resources that he clearly wanted, which was really part of the reason why he likely left, right? I mean, he just wasn't able to, in his mind, be able to, I think, get the most out of the team and to adequately prepare them for this World Cup. And one of the ways that he thought that he could do it, and I completely agree with him, when you consider how we've performed in these games, more matches against marquee opponents, right? That's kind of what marred us at the World Cup. We didn't have that experience playing against teams of that caliber who can just adjust on the fly without any coaching whatsoever. Um, I remember after the World Cup, actually, the the Croatia game, um, we spoke to Jonathan Osorio, and he was just marveling at the fact that when Croatia went one nil down, not only did they seem completely unfazed, they started adjusting themselves on the fly in terms of what they were seeing from Canada's point of view, and then tried to exploit it that way by getting Brozovic to drop into a center mid back three to pull Alfonso Davies out from wide inside, opening up a lane for the wing back to kind of receive the ball dribble forward, Canada shape would get dragged out of position and things like that. So you obviously tend to polish that when you play against these more marquee teams. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I think the, the that John ended up ultimately leaving. Um, so the fact that, We weren't able to get those September friendlies clearly hurts. Um, We were only able to get the one October friendly, which look, it's against Japan. That's a very good opponent, of course, but ideally you would have wanted to have two games. Um, The women, we all know the problems they dealt with leading into it. Um, And look, at at the end of the day, the the last 20 odd years, um, the Federation has never really had to account for this level of spending before, right? Because of all the qualifying games in 2021, that meant all the travel, all the COVID testing, the extra security, because they had to go to Haiti in the middle of a military coup of all things. So that meant you had to add extra security, right? Just because of safety concerns. Um, All those things added up. Plus you got the women going to the Olympics and getting gold, and then they have to prepare for the World Cup. That costs money. Camps are not cheap. I mean, they can cost... I mean, I don't have an exact figure, but I, I can only imagine just based on even what travel would cost, that it, it can't be cheap at all to just do one camp for a couple of weeks. So I do think that now that they're starting to get a better handle of the finances, at least from the looks of it, they're being a little bit more frugal now so that, okay, look, 2023 was not great, but maybe going into 2024, if we can qualify for Copa America, if the women can can end up getting into the Olympics and doing well, we get a little bit of extra funds from that maybe then things can start turning around. And then clearly, you know, with with John going going off to TFC, you free up some salary that way. Some other staff members leave. You can maybe free up some salary that way. Um, There are many possibilities here. Um, The relationship with Canadian soccer business, that's really the golden question here, right? Because some people think that they're very much in, in connection in every single way. Clearly that they they do siphon off the sponsorship money that was part of the agreement In, in exchange for us investing all this money into Canadian soccer. We need to mitigate and cover our losses. So in exchange for that, we're going to take the sponsorship money, which was actually quite a big chunk of money for Canada soccer in 2021. I think it was something like 15, $20 million they made that year. And then I mean, you can't even imagine what they would have earned in a World Cup year if they were getting sponsorship money from that. you could got CIBC jumping on board, BMO jumping on board, other massive sponsors that that could have been extra money into Canada Soccer's coffers. So that is where you kind of look at and think, okay, just how much are they in cahoots here? Um, and, and it really is the the golden question here now, because especially with the men needing to hire a new coach, will CSB influence that? How much influence will they have? It's all these kinds of questions that people are rightfully asking because when you look at U.S. soccer and Soccer United Marketing, which was the marketing arm of Major League Soccer and still is, they were very closely associated with U.S. soccer because they did a lot of the jobs that Canadian soccer business supposedly does for Canada soccer. And they were accused of maybe having their hand in the honeypot a bit too much in U.S. soccer. So that is maybe why people are looking at that and then looking at this situation and saying, well, is it the same? And the fact that there isn't too much transparency around that might lead people to be a lot more suspicious than maybe they probably should be. But I think it's justifiable why people are asking questions because clearly they want answers, right?
0: Yeah. um, How much of this, like you mentioned, we not playing transfer windows, right. And we're trying to qualify for the Copa America, we're trying, the women obviously are in the Olympics, which is probably one of the reasons why the men didn't, did not get much friendlies because they mentioned in a press conference beforehand that, you know, we might only one um, set of group, uh, sorry, the men or the women could play, Um, what's the word, the transfer window, or oh, sorry, the the international window. And how does, how much does this affect, like, the U17 World Cup, the 15 World Cup, any qualify like, CONCACAF championships, men and women's side, like, does this potential like I oh, know the, the we're gonna get into the U17s in a second, uh, not in a second, in, in a bit here. Obviously, they're going. I don't I didn't see any reports that they're not going. Um, mm-hmm. Does this have a concern with those in the future as well if nothing gets resolved?
1: In terms of the tournaments, no, because typically now I'm not sure if it's like this for all competitions, but the confederations or if it's a FIFA tournament, FIFA do tend to cover. The travel costs, which is a massive chunk of what the budget for a camp is. Um, and so for that reason, things like the U17 World Cup, if we qualify it, qualify for it, a men's U-20 World Cup, even things like a gold cup, etc., that would not really affect it too much because the costs are usually mitigated by things like that, by different grants, etc. Um, Where it really would affect things are things like, and John's spoken about this at length in the last few months, it's the amount of youth camps outside of those tournament windows, right? Because we see the plethora of talent there is in Canada and even outside of Canada from players who are eligible to play for Canada, right? And the U.S. has a similar situation just with all the mass immigration, the multiculturalism, just like we see in our country, Everybody's actually kind of experiencing this now just with everybody moving all over the world these days, right? And so as a result, when you get these players in really young, that is really impressionable for them. Because if you're a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid and you're getting to represent your country, that's a very infectious feeling, right? You get to make friends and in the youth teams. You build relationships with coaches, with directors, whoever. And that can actually influence your future decision when the time comes for you to choose, okay, which country am I going to represent at the senior level? Right. And that's why there is such a massive concern when Canada is losing on on dual nationals, like Marcelo Flores, potentially the likes of, you know, Daniel Jebison or Nico Sigur, who is now in the Croatian youth system, um, even though he was born and raised in Canada, in Burnaby. Right. So you, you think of situations like that, And that's where it could actually really hurt things because if you don't have the money to be able to have regular camps, but then let's say you're a Portuguese Canadian kid and Portugal has U19 or U17 camps pretty much every single international break and they're calling you up, well, that's clearly going to influence your decision to maybe one day represent Portugal until that possibility isn't assured, right? So that's to me where it would influence it. Not so much the tournaments, but what happens outside of those windows, which can really make a difference come the times of those tournaments. I remember speaking to to Mauro Biello about this uh, before, I believe it was before the Olympic qualifiers in 2021. And he was just talking about how many players um, kind of withdrew at the last minute because their clubs didn't want them to go. And then you add on top of the fact that you don't get those extra games to prepare tactically ahead of the tournament. You pretty much got a few training sessions to prepare for a tournament that is going to determine whether or not you make an Olympics, make an under 20 world cup, make an under 17 world cup. And when you're playing every couple of days, that's not necessarily the most advantageous position to be in. So that's where it can also really affect you when you're just looking at the playing side of things, even outside of the whole dual national argument as well. Yeah. Okay. So
0: when, yeah, because like, when you mentioned, there's players like Bono from Morocco. I think he was eligible for Canada back in the day. Right. Um, Who was mm-hmm. the, uh, the... Fakayo Tomori. Fakayo Tomori was, I think, from Calgary, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, or somewhere right. around here. Yeah. So, like, obviously, if you want to be successful, yes, we'll get to the player development in a second, but you want to develop local talent, but attract, whether they're Canadian-born or not, players like that, right? Because I think Ike Ubo... For example, we joined and, you know, this is before all, and all the drama happened. Me and me and Joven were like, oh, let's go. We're attracting players now. Like, yeah, Ike Ugbo may not never um, make the English squad ever. So at least he chose us over other countries, right? And now, like you mentioned, there's a little scared moment that like, yeah, we might be missing on guys. Like, I remember you tweeting about a guy named Mitrovic. I think Stefan Mitrovic. Right. Um, yes. Like that, right? So like, do you think we will be able to attract more players if potentially this gets solved, I guess a little bit.
1: Yeah, I I think we can for sure. Especially if you can even just guarantee one or two extra camps per year. Um, I remember leading up to the 2022 uh, CONCACAF U20 championship. The program had a, I believe it was a two match window in April in Costa Rica. And they called up a bunch of, kids who were dual nationals like Jesse Costa, for example, who's now playing for Portugal's under 19s because there just isn't enough opportunities at the youth level for Canada for him to continue playing there. Um, and I remember speaking to a few of the kids' parents and they were just raving about how excited the kids were to represent Canada, to be with their friends. Cause a lot of these kids grow up together, playing together from the you know very young age, four five, six years old. Um, you mentioned Mitrovic there, him and Theo Corbinu actually played youth soccer together in the Hamilton area when they were kids and they're still friends to this day. Right. So imagine if those two could have come through the youth system together, or even just had the opportunity to come through a senior camp together. That can make all the difference, right? Because in a lot of situations, it's the personal connections that can really make the difference. And these kids were also close with the coaching staff too. Andrew Oliveri, Mauro Biello. They put in a lot of work behind the scenes to convince these kids to, to join the Canadian setup and everything was going well. There was apparently some late tactical changes leading up to that CONCACAF championship, which kind of left some of those kids on the outside, but regardless, they were still proud and honored to play for Canada at a, major tournament right an opportunity to go to an under 20 world cup um and if those opportunities would have been there post concacaf championship perhaps they might still be in the ranks and we could be talking about them as possible call-ups for this japan camp or maybe in the future let's say there's a january camp in on the horizon and they could have had an opportunity there right so it's i feel like if they solve these financial issues if csb or whoever can maybe inject some funds Funds. There's a new heritage fund as well, which is more private. If you can get some money invested that way and then have these extra youth camps that can certainly make a difference. If only to give opportunities to kids and at least make them think, okay, look, I could play for this country, but I could also represent Canada. And that's a very plausible option for me.
0: Um so Last thing with the CSB, what are your personal thoughts on it? Cause Listening to you guys, I'm not. I'm not sure if you got a chance. I had a kind of a kind of a rant <laughs> on on our podcast where Jovan was even like, "Oh my God, he's kind of cooking." Someone let him just speak. It was it was regarding um, when we when I officially when we officially found out that there was no September camps, and this was obviously coming off the Women's World Cup, kind of a dreadful performance by them. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, as Canadian soccer fans, soccer fans in general, but Canadian as well we were, we're excited that we have, like, the, I guess the frustration builds up that, you know, you have the talent. Now you finally have reached that um area, that area. You don't have to worry about, you know, you, we should be a perennial world cup team now from now on. So I think that frustrated part got to me. So, and one of the things I said was with the CSB um I think the length of the contract is what concerned everybody, which I, I guess I understand. Mm-hmm. And I know it helped us get the world cup hosting right because i think we needed the cpl in order to do that but at the same time it's like why sign a massive contract right so like what are your personal thoughts on csp if it's good or bad for canada soccer
1: it's such a fascinating question because i feel like it's twofold there is one side that is very plausible and there's another side that's also plausible and maybe before i get into it this is where i feel like sometimes people in the media they can tend to be a little bit too black or white with these things. They don't necessarily look at all sides and maybe contextualize things properly because if we go back to 2018, even before that, like as the CPL was still planning on, on forming and everything else, because the formation of CSB goes back to even before the contract was signed, right? Victor Montaliani had lunch with Scott Mitchell. That's when the CPL was born. Um, And that's allegedly when CSB was kind of concocted in that moment. And when you look at it we needed a domestic league to host a world cup and i do think wrongly as well the federation as well as the future cpl owners they put too much stock in the men's game because they saw that was the money maker they saw that's what generated all the revenues that's what really injected cash into federation and that's completely true of course. I mean, there's far more prize money at stake. There's far more money at stake in the men's game than there is in the women's game. And I remember John actually spoke about this at length in terms of what was motivating him to really get Canada to this 2022 world cup. And it was that extra injection of cash where you can really do a lot of good to grow the game in the country. Cause he estimated, and and this is going to be true anywhere from 20 to $30 million U S could come in from qualifying for consecutive men's world cups. Now, we all know the issue that it has now caused since then. But when you look at that, and then you look at CSB and the CPL and Canada Soccer putting all their eggs into that basket, and you see them realizing, okay, we've got a league. We have got the formation here to be able to get a World Cup in our country now, a men's World Cup in our country. So now what's next? Because no one's investing in Canadian soccer. Neither of the big networks are investing in Canadian soccer. No one seems to really be paying for it in terms of sponsorship. And this is where the CSA was really in a pickle here, right? And so, I mean, I do commend them for this from a business point of view. CPL slash CSB saw an opportunity and said, okay, look, we're, we're pumping our own money to create the Canadian Premier League. No one's investing in Canadian soccer really. Let's yeah. try to bargain this deal. Because in 2018, j- just to, again, contextualize it, at the time, yes, the women w- were very successful, and I do blame Canada Soccer as well as potentially really mostly CSB because they were the ones who who I think were really more involved in this for not really propping up the women's game more and really trying to, for lack of a better term, milk all that they could out of what was a very successful women's program. But when you look at... The situation for the men's program in 2018. Alfonso Davies hadn't yet moved to Bayern Munich. He was still doing amazing things with the Whitecaps, but he hadn't gone to Bayern yet. There was no Tejon Buchanan, there was no alistair Johnson, there was no Kamal Miller. John Herbin had just taken over the men's team amidst a lot of scrutiny. Um, and so it was a very different time, right? What I will say, and this is where I do blame some of the investors, if you could see the massive spike in registrations for youth soccer in our country in the 2000s, which is when all of our players, by the way, it coincides with all of our top players like Fonzie, like Jonathan David, etc., starting to play youth soccer. You saw the likes of Davies coming through. Jonathan David was even slowly starting to make waves at that time. You could see that there was maybe potential there for the men's program to really improve. And so that's where I blame potential investors, even the big networks, for not seeing those opportunities and investing. But the situation was no one was investing. So Canada Soccer was obviously, bit, they were over a barrel at this point. So that's where the CSB deal kind of came to be. So I think at the time, it's a deal they had to take and really had no other choice but to take. With hindsight being what it is, considering the timeline we have now been on, is it a bad deal? Of course it is. No one can justify it otherwise. It is a bad deal. It clearly hampers everybody involved except for Canadian soccer business. Um, But that being said as well, without the Canadian soccer business, we'd have no Canadian Premier League. We'd have no additional pathway for players in this country. Um, It's great to see Project 8 now coming to fruition for our women in this country, our female players in this country to get an extra opportunity. And you're starting to see, even after five years the fruits of the CPL's labor now being bared when you see the likes of Joel Waterman and Victor Loturi and Dominic Zator, Lucas McNaughton, et cetera, coming through the CPL, getting national team call-ups. And sure, not all of them are going to be regulars, but would they have had that opportunity even a couple of years ago if it wasn't for the CPL? You would have to say no. So it's a very long-winded way of saying there's two sides to it. One where you need to contextualize the situation it was in, but then another where you have to say, all right, if Canadian soccer business really does care about growing Canadian soccer, if all sides want to find solutions here, we need to stop the infighting, we need to stop the lack of trust, and we need to find some common ground here. Because that is something that really has infected this sport in this country for so long. It's the lack of trust, and it's all the finger pointing that goes around instead of saying, listen... My bad, I faulted there. Here's what we can do to maybe make the best out of this whole situation, and that goes for every single aspect of currently what we're dealing with, at least in my opinion.
0: Um, one thing you you didn't mention there is potential political funding, and listen, we're not pol- we hate politics and ourselves. We don't we don't follow it <laughs> properly, but um, after the World Cup, we saw the. Um, the Australian government provide, I think it was two hundred million. Yeah, when so-
2: they made the bronze yeah. medal game, right?
0: Yeah, they and they saw something and like the government fund they help they're helping the program out there. Do you think that our government, depending on who it is at the time or whatever the case may be, should also help involve themselves? And listen, not just for soccer, even all Canadian sports. Because we had Alex Adams on, and I, and I know you've been on his podcast before. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying like and also right now he is uh, we were, we we're talking about Canada basketball on the rise a similar talent wise as Canada soccer obviously mm-hmm. behind the scenes might be different um, mm-hmm. not just hockey anymore right because even the Olympics we got runners we got swimmers we have a th- like hammer throw people
2: like we're getting we're getting up there in sports right
0: and yeah. should they be helping fund uh, in sports in general in this case is just focus on soccer um, for the both men and women side because we have a talent yeah we may never win the men's World Cup but the Women's World Cup, we definitely have a chance if if everything falls right. For sure.
1: Yeah, we, we should invest in Canadian soccer, Canadian sport in general, because look at the good that sport can do for everybody, right? As a kid, it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, all, all three of us currently on the podcast, maybe everybody listening, anybody out there, we can all point to some really fun childhood memories and link it to sport, whether it was participating in sport, watching sport, everything, like pretty much everything that I can be thankful for in terms of why my childhood was the way it was, was due to sports and more specifically soccer. Um, and to really, I think, help our kids, that's a great way to, to, I think, spend taxpayer dollars is just to invest in the grassroots, whatever that may be through coaching, through better facilities. I think that's really the big one is the facilities. Because how many times have we gone to a grass pitch and you can't play on it because, oh, well, maintenance costs too much, or there just isn't enough because they're all booked out, right? And and now you're seeing, even in in faraway places where you wouldn't expect it, like you're starting to see more pitches being built. You're seeing these these multi-sport facilities being built. I, I now see that they're actually making an effort to build Uh, cricket pitches in certain areas of the country as well which is awesome to see right just giving basketball courts whatever the case giving kids more of an opportunity to get outside get active to play and to just fall in love with sport that's a great way to do it Um, obviously as a soccer person I would love for that to be in Canadian soccer for sure and there definitely is a way to do that I mean in general, if we can invest in Canadian sport, I think that's a great way to do it. I, I mean, clearly some taxpayer dollars are not going to some pretty um, decent places. I think that is one way that you can definitely start to, I think, win back some of the public is by just investing in sport. Because, again, a lot of things we can be thankful for in our lives can be tied to whatever sport it is that that we love, right?
2: Yeah, sports is you know, big part of our lives, you know, there's a reason why we're here having this conversation with you. Otherwise, you know, we still try to play as much as we can, right? We always try to message cousins, you know, let's play some basketball. You know, me and we're on the, our same soccer team. We're still playing uh, seven aside. side. So like it just provides so many benefits, right? Even health-wise was one of the main things because I remember when I was struggling in school, I had to, it was COVID time, right? And like I couldn't go out and, you know, play with my friends or play with my cousins, So I was just inside all day, you know, just being, feeling all like down and stuff. But like the minute I was able to get back out, it also helped my, helped me with my school, helped me with my mental health and everything. Like it provides a benefit like all around type of thing for me.
1: For sure. Same, same with me. I mean, I remember everyone knows how tough COVID was just because you couldn't get outside, get active, or or even just interact socially with people. And that's another big aspect too, is the social aspect, right? Just getting to hang out with your friends and to maybe play a little bit of footy, whether it's seven aside or 11 aside, whatever the situation is, shoot some hoops, whatever the case, right. It's, it's just, it it can be such a, a stress reliever. It can really just boost your overall mood. Like, and listen, considering how I think health conscious at times the government has been over the last few years, that's one way that you can really help, right. Is, Is by just getting kids active, getting all of us active, and, and by investing in Canadian sport, great way With to do all it. All of
0: this is as simple as getting out of the CSB deal and get the men and women equal pay so everybody's happy all around because I believe the women do deserve it because they carried Canada soccer on the senior um, side of things. And yeah, like, and then maybe the players like Alfonso Davies and like Christine St. Clair and whoever's on the come up, they get bigger cuts if they have jersey sales and stuff like that rather than going straight to CSB, which I think I heard was a case as well if I'm not mistaken. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. They, they started to dispute whether or not they were allowed to use their likeness and image for certain advertisements. And that was actually something that I suggested pretty much a year ago at this point was, look, I feel like both legal parties, whether you're representing the players or you're representing the Federation, they're There's too much spot picking going on, I feel. There's too much finger pointing going on, right? Going back to the point of no one seems to really trust each other. They need to try to find some common ground and realize, look, this is the situation we're in. It is what it is. Let's try to make the most of it. And one of the solutions that I had was, what if the players directly negotiated imaging rights with CSB? Therefore, whether it's the official sponsors of Canada Soccer or new sponsors come in, the players can get some extra money that way that they maybe otherwise wouldn't be getting if Canada soccer had all of the sponsorship revenue coming their way. And th- that was one thing that I suggested. Clearly they haven't really come to an agreement in that way because they just seem to be just not trusting each other. Um, and, and they're just going ahead and using their likeness anyways. Um, but, but that's one thing you could do big picture. If I was in charge, look, I'd try to find a way to get, because I, I believe that contract is binding. They're they're trying to get out of it, but there's just no possible way seemingly to do it. It's just, and I feel like they are, they've been on record as saying they are doing this can, Canadian soccer business, but just get them to to realize like, look, the, the PR damage that is being taken here is not good for anybody. Let's try to get some extra money invested here because if we really want to be successful in a home world cup, not get completely embarrassed. We need this, right? You saw what that level of spending provided in 2021 with the qualifying run, with the Olympic run. So that is where you see what is required. Let's try to, maybe not every single little thing, right? But at the very least, let's try to get close to that and and, and try to bring some level of standards back. Because look, as unfortunate as it might sound, there are some areas where you have to spend money to improve and that's just the reality of the situation. You can't pinch pennies and get these non-marquee opponents. You can't pinch pennies. And, and I'm just throwing examples out here, but maybe you, you want to take more staff with you to be more adequately prepared and you don't have the budget to be able to take more staff with you to these camps, things like that. So that would be the big picture solution. Ideally, otherwise, you have to try to get some private funding. I know that John Herdman knocked on doors before this. He's been on record as saying this and trying to get money in for a January camp or for you know a certain camp of some kind during whatever time of year it was. Um, th- that seems to be the best short-term solution. And un- until that CSB deal ends, that might be the reality that we find ourselves in as a country, which is very disappointing because... When you're less than three years away from a home World Cup, and you're dealing with these problems, clearly that's less than ideal.
0: Is there a potential that FIFA could be like, okay, the problems are continuing, we're taking your, um, you know, your home home hosting benefits away, or is the, is that not allowed in in general? Since they already announced hosts, Vancouver, Toronto, obviously being the two cities hosting it,
1: right. they, they ideally could. I don't think they will because Victor Montaliani has a lot of pull on that board. Clearly, he's a FIFA vice president. He's president of CONCACAF. Um, he's His influence is growing on the political side within FIFA. So I don't think he's going to let that happen, especially when his hometown and our hometown of Vancouver is hosting games, right? And they've actually been given a lot more sweeteners to come back into the bid as a result, like by being the hub city for all media. A lot of media are going to be set up in Vancouver because of all the scenery and, and whatnot. They got extra games as a result, apparently one extra marquee game, i.e. a quarterfinal or just maybe one more top tier opponent coming to play in Vancouver as well. So things like that, I feel like you can't really withdraw from it. Ideally, you could. But let's say FIFA didn't want the negative PR and they say, all right, Canada, no games for you. We'll give extra to the US. There are cities that could probably do it on short notice, but I don't think they do that just given... Montaliani's influence really. And and look, is it the worst situation we find ourselves in? No, because I feel like unless there's proper political interference or there's a literal military coup going on, I don't think FIFA would, would be, would be willing to, to strip hosting duties away from co-hosting duties anyways from Canada.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's move on towards the team, the men's and women's team. We'll just start off with the players first, obviously disappointing world cup. Like I mentioned, both men and women. Um, and then the CONCACAF Nations final was kind of a dud to, when Canada faced U.S. And then the, obviously, I know you're part of the Gold Cup, but outside of the U.S. game, kind of lackluster in our opinion. Nothing against you in here, because I know you were involved in that. <laughs> but uh, is it a valid excuse for the players and even coaches to use, because of all this behind-the-scenes drama, that that's why they performed poorly in the men's and women's competitions? Uh, or, um, yeah, like, or is it more on the player or canada soccer in your opinion?
1: I do think it does come into play. What I will say is, though, when you look at the number of countries at the women's world cup who were dealing with late payments, lack of resources, I mean, just look at Jamaica right as a key example, they still made the last 16. Um, a lot of countries punch above their weight at that tournament despite the lack of resources. Nigeria's coach wasn't even a full-time coach. He was coaching part-time for the university of Pittsburgh and the Nigerian women's national team. Yeah. And yet, despite that, they got to the next round. So in a way it, it it is an excuse. Yes. Because if you don't have the number of games to prepare and most of those countries, I think bar Nigeria did play games between April and the world cup, whereas Canada did not outside of that behind closed door friendly against England right before the tournament started. So it's, that to me makes, gives me like a yes and no answer. Same thing with the men's side, right? If you, if you are dealing with certainly a lack of resources, certainly in comparison to the U.S. and Mexico, um, you can only punch above your weight for so long until reality eventually sets in and you're like, yeah, the big spenders are going to have a massive advantage. And that's what we saw with, with the U S right in that game. Like, I'll, I mean, I'll just throw out examples there, but um, it's a pro U S crowd in an American stadium. They get the, I mean, even just the little things, like they get the better locker room, they get the better treatment, they get the better um, they have more staff. They have pretty much almost two to one in terms of staff to players on the U S side, whereas we were less than one-to-one one per player. Like I think there was 20 staff and 20 three or 24 players on our gold cup squad. Um, Things like that can really add up because even at the nation's league, like I wasn't at the nation's league. And I know for a fact that because of one performance analyst being there, that adds extra work to everybody else's plate. And then that could be the difference between, you know, getting certain things done and not done. And then therefore you're prepared less and it's just a snowball effect. Right? So I, I do think that there is some credence to it. Um, people might then ask, well, what about the, the World Cup qualifying cycle? Because the issues that we're talking about now were still a reality a couple of years ago. Because I know that people were kind of parsing through John's comments post Nations League final about, you know, we need to get serious. We have a lack of resources. We need more marquee opponents. And people are asking, well, why wasn't this an excuse during World Cup qualifying Simply put, everybody was on the same playing field during World Cup qualifying. Everybody had three-game windows apart from that November window where the only time Canada didn't have to travel, they were solely in Edmonton and got everything to their advantage. But other than that, everybody had to deal with tight turnarounds, three-match windows, tons of travel in between, lack of training time. Whereas leaning into that Nations League final, the federations were in charge of their schedules. And because the U.S. had the money they had, I believe it was 10 training sessions from just before the semifinal until the final. We had about three or four by comparison. And that can make a heck of a lot of difference just in terms of getting guys out on the pitch and familiar again, because they hadn't been together since March before that. Um, Working on set pieces, which the US dominated it, right? Um, Just working on certain tactical sinks and, and whatnot. Like all those things do add up for sure. So that's that's where I do say that things like that, at least when it comes to the on-the-pitch performance, it can affect things like that. Um, but that being said, there are certain situations where you have to look at other sides, especially on the women's side, and say, these weren't unique problems for us necessarily.
0: Um, who are your core pieces for the men's and women's teams, the senior teams, right? Um, I think there's a couple on the men. That you like pencil in no matter what. For example, Alfonso Davies, Stefan or Jonathan David. And then the woman's side, I guess it could vary because I know Christine St. Clair is up there in age now. So who knows when she might retire. But is it straightforward that outside of maybe the defense, because that's her st- strong suit, mm-hmm. um, that's the core? Who's like the core pieces there going forward for both men and the woman?
1: I think you pretty much nailed it for the men. I'd probably throw Ismail Kone in there now just because of. I think just the massive growth he's taken over the last year and, you know, having seen him in that March camp, having watched him now at Watford for the last year, and even having spoken to uh, Richard Shaw, who was part of our coaching staff, he's coaching the under 21s at Watford. So he's actually gotten a close look at Ismail over the last little bit. And the growth is remarkable. Like you can see tier one potential there. You can see him going to a big club and actually thriving at this point. And you watch him in that U S game, he was fantastic at breaking the U.S.'s press, progressing the ball forward, and he's just so calm out there too, which I feel kind of goes under the radar sometimes of just how good he is, is just how unfazed he is in those situations, which is crazy to think that he was playing amateur soccer in the Montreal area a couple of years ago. And now here he is playing for a promotion contender in the championship, getting caps for Canada, and is now a key player. So I throw him in there on top of that. Um, on the women's side, Kadisha Buchanan for sure. Kaylin Sheridan for sure. Um, I'd now say Ashley Lawrence, just given her growing veteran leadership. And now she's moved to Chelsea, one of the top clubs in the world. And she's going to thrive there. Um, Julia Grosso, hundred percent. Jesse Fleming, hundred percent. From there, I feel like it's, it's an opportunity Jordan Heidema could take, but when you watch her with Canada, you think. Is she being hampered tactically or is she just not maybe comfortable being the star up front these days for the national team? Because at the club level, she's thrived. But for the national team, you feel like there's maybe something a little left to be desired. Um, So those would be the names that I'd immediately look at. And it's great to see the likes of Grosso and and Fleming and whatnot becoming more key pieces for Canada that Jamaica game. They showed a lot of flashes, which is good considering the world cup that just happened. And you may wonder, are they being limited tactically? Are they really being given that freedom to, to produce the performances that they have for their clubs with the national team? Um, and you have to say that if they are given that freedom, they could be fantastic stalwarts for the women's program for the next five, 10 years.
0: Is it straightforward that the weaknesses on both sides for the men is just straight up the defensive side of things and then the woman is the offensive side of things?
1: Yeah, and uh, what I would say about the men's side is th- this is where the concern lies, right? Steven Vittoria is, I mean, I- I've interacted with him several times now. One of the most incredible human beings you'll ever meet. He's a great locker room guy. So just for that reason, he's great to have but also he's one of the only center backs that Canada has who's playing at this level, right? Playing for regular club in Portugal this season so far, not so much, but I'm talking maybe leading up to the summer, he would have been a player who was an everyday starter for a club in a top seven, top eight league in the world. And the reality is we don't really have that luxury. That's not to say Kamal Miller, Derek Cornelius, Alistair Johnston, um, you can even throw Zach McGraw in there these days. They're not options. They're not legitimate options. They are for sure, and they still have a lot more growth left in their games. But when you look at who the U.S. has, right, and they're just loaded with, with tier one talent across the board, and you're like, yeah, that's probably where we lack because you can only do so much tactically. You can only do so much to to for lack of a better term, mask weaknesses, or to maybe make up for maybe a lack of quality in one area until you kind of get exposed. Right. And that for me is where you look at both programs and say, these are the problem areas for the women. I feel like the switch of the three, five, two, we'll probably get into this if we talk Jamaica, but the tactical switch, the Return of some players like Nichelle Prince, eventually Janine Becky is going to be fully fit and she'll play into this as well. That's going to really help. Um, But when you look at the team's struggles, especially against top tier opponents in open play, you think to yourself, is it a talent issue? Is it a coaching issue? Or is it a combination of everything? And that's really what the golden question is.
0: So you mentioned the talent, right? Because like the U.S., obviously, especially on the men's side, they have a lot of European talent going on. We actually brought a good friend of ours, um, Derek Bossy. I'm not sure if you know who he is. He was part of the U-17 and 20 um, national team back in 2011,
2: yeah, 2011
0: 2012. and uh, was part of the Whitecaps Academy. And we were talking to him about what was the differences that you've seen when you were playing on that U17, U20 team. And now, and he did say it's much better improved, like obviously you've mentioned, but the talent is and the development of the talent isn't there. And I know Jovan will follow up with the question that um, we mentioned to him. Um, is it simply like you mentioned when we're talking with a general landscape, the grassroots level development isn't just there for you know, eventually homegrown players, like you don't have to rely on um, dual citizens, for example, that we could have more as long as we develop from the U9s, U10s to U15, etc.
1: Yeah, It's a great option to have when you are a country like Canada and you have the dual nationals available to you for sure. But ideally if you can nail your grassroots development, then that is a great primary option to have and then if you need to fill in the gaps with some dual nationals in there maybe just to add a little bit more quality in certain areas then great like if you can get a bit of a cheat code in that way awesome you take it um but the what's crazy is despite the lack of facilities despite the maybe at times lack of proper scouting in this country the talent is there like i grew up playing with kids of all different backgrounds and creeds who were absolutely unbelievable. Like whether they were Korean Canadians, Iranian Canadians, Portuguese Canadians, Indo-Canadians, whatever the case. And they were so, so, so good, but they just were not recognized. They were never seen by the people who mattered. Right. And that really is the problem when you have such a massive country like ours, just by area um, it's really hard to, I think, get every single player But that's where the talent ID camps need to come in. That's where maybe the regional national development centers need to come in. So then instead of having to focus just more broadly across the country, you just assign like, okay, this this national development center is just for BC. This national development center is just for the prairies. This one is just for Ontario, et cetera, et cetera. And then you maybe start to bridge the gaps a little bit there because far too many kids are slipping through the cracks. And- they're not achieving their potential or getting the opportunities. And that's what's so unfortunate. Just look at Jonathan David as a great example. He was still playing club soccer when he was playing for the under 17s. One of only two or three kids, I think, who weren't in an MLS academy. And he was by far the best player. So it goes to show you that you don't have to be in an MLS academy. You don't have to be in a certain environment to achieve your potential to be a quality player. You just have to be given the opportunity sometimes and the rest will follow. And that to me is where the issue is. Thank God for the CPL. Thank God for league one, Canada. And you're starting to see the gaps getting bridged there. You're seeing kids get more opportunities and then making the step up. Um, But there are certainly still ways to improve it. And by adding more facilities, by getting more coaches, by, by maybe even lowering registration fees and, and giving more kids an opportunity because not everybody can afford to play youth soccer, unfortunately, or youth sport, unfortunately. Um, You can then really unlock even more potential in the country because that's the crazy thing. When you look at the talent, it's right there. Let's look at the under 17s, right? They're always one of the top countries in the world when it comes to just the talent level. But then it's from that point on forward, as well as just the quantity of players from that level and prior, where we maybe lag behind other countries.
2: Yeah, um, uh, one thing I've learned from uh, what Derek said on our, when he was here is that like he wanted a system where like where the kids and the the senior team are playing similar. Where like he uh, wanted to break it down by each province, like you mentioned, where he could do like, okay, coaches, you know, the the national team is playing four three three. Drill that in the kids. Right, coaches were playing four-two-three-one, drill that in the kids, mm-hmm. so that way they're they're g- g- growing up and playing the system that you know the national team plays, which could probably you know help the development, right? Because like one thing I find difficult as a player is like you know just playing one thing, you know, as a club level. And then if you go to a different team, you have to match another system, uh, like you know another coach's system. Where like if we could drill it in the kids early on, they could might you know have an advantage, right, when they could potentially join the youth team
1: yeah 100 and that's where i think at least on the men's side that you saw some of that kind of coming through while john was in charge you know he was playing 4-3-3 the under 20s and the under 17s were also playing 4-3-3 with similar tactical platforms um and that to me is very advantageous because a lot of top countries whether it's france germany italy what have you they all follow that same template because then when it comes time to Join the senior program. At least you have that framework behind you and that knowledge behind you from a young age to know okay, this is generally how the senior team plays. If this is my role, this is the responsibility I have to carry out. This is where, and I'm just let's use a center back as an example. If my wing back has a wing back sink and he has to push up to the opposition fullback, well, then this is the space I have to cover here as a result. So that's where. I would say that things like that, it would be very advantageous. And I think at least for Canada, especially when you consider that maybe at times some of the players don't get that really high-level tactical coaching from a young age, that's really where it can be very helpful too.
0: Um, so in your opinion, where is the best for a young guy? Let's just say they're 10, 11, 12. They get recognized by the Whitecaps locally, for example, or Toronto, etc um where is the best place for them to develop if they're young obviously it depends on each player's talent and position but if Mm -hmm. you were to go because we have the mls the mls next pro option ncaa if you're heading into college usually i know a lot of the women for example julia grosso from texas um i think ucla had jesse fleming and then the cpl now or should they be have an opportunity to go to europe go to europe like in your opinion is it just simple as where you get the most opportunity to play or is it, or do you have a situation where what this one gives you the most development as a young player?
1: Yeah, I would say that it's, it really is, I think, dependent on the player of course, but it would just be where do I see myself getting the most opportunities to own my craft? Where am I going to get the best coaching? Where am I going to get the best possible facilities and resources to realize my potential? Um, do you know, am I the kind of player who maybe improves more with the, with the amount of games that I play at a higher level, all those things come into play. If if it's the latter in terms of, I need that match practice to really improve, then you probably look at league one or the NCAA or the CPL, even if you can maybe get opportunities there, especially now that they're starting to open up youth programs themselves, that could be a pathway that I follow. If you have a European passport and you have some opportunity to trial at some top level European academies and you feel like by getting the absolute best coaching and by being with kids at your level and age and you you get that experience abroad and you really get to take in that culture that just 24 7 this is how serious it is culture you can improve that way you take that um if you feel like you want to stay at home but you still want the best possible facilities join a Whitecaps, join a Montreal, join a Toronto, et cetera. It it really is just tailor-made to the player, really. And this is where I think, again, having all those multiple pathways is so so advantageous. Because we're not a traditional footballing country, that is where this can come in handy. Because if you are someone who wants to get an education, but still keep playing, you can go through the NCAA. It worked for Kamal Miller, it worked for Tayshaun Buchanan, it worked for Kyle Aaron, it worked for Alistair Johnston. Um, and now look at where they are, right? If you want to go the traditional route in terms of going into an, in, into an academy, sorry, and then coming through, maybe a bit more of a code because he was so clearly good, but you can go the Alfonso Davies route, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this is why I'm so fascinated to see what happens in the next five, 10 years as League One Canada keeps growing, as the CPL keeps growing, and really seeing kind of what happens to this next generation of kids now that they have so many more opportunities, even compared to when I was, was a kid, it was either you join an MLS Academy, you go to college and maybe possibly play. But even then that would have been a bit of a pipe dream. Other than that, you were kind of screwed. Now there's five, six, seven chances for you to be able to at least continue to pursue a dream of playing professionally.
0: Um. Okay, this is more of a local question. So maybe, I know you're in the East Coast right now, but Mm -hmm. and Alex, I know, is on the West Coast. So if I ever have the chance to meet him or do a podcast with him, he might be more reliable on this one. But just, I guess, if you don't know, the Whitecaps U19 team here, they play in the Fraser Valley Soccer League. Now, Mm -hmm. that's just like a local, I guess you could say beer league team, like the premier level there. Do you think Mm -hmm. that's an appropriate spot for them? Because I personally don't think it is. Because they're playing like... For example, the a team that just played, um, he uh, his division one team in that same league played them last year. Yeah. That got promoted at Prem, and then they ended up winning seven two against them. So right. See
2: the competition they're facing, I faced them last year, and I'm just playing for fun, <laughs> just like trying to get back into things. And uh, then there's like this Whitecaps U19 team, just like a legit team playing these th- yeah. same teams with us.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can see the advantage of playing against adults. I can, but you probably want it in a more organized setting. That's probably where, and I know the Whitecaps have teams in league one BC, but that's probably the level you maybe aspire to start at if you are the U 19s or if you're the U 17s, whatever. Um, because that way you're still playing against people of all ages and you're still playing in a semi-professional structured environment. Um and you're also playing against adults, so that that's probably where I where I would ideally like to to see all these youth teams play. I know Toronto um, FC as well. They have a similar issue in that they play they play in League One Ontario, um, and they're under 21s, I believe, or sorry, they're under 20s or they're under 19, somewhere around there. They play in the under 21 division in League One Ontario, where I feel like that's kind of a waste because you could end up aspiring to a better level and it would just help the kids too. Cause what can you really learn by playing in a, in a setting like that? Really? Like, I mean, in absolutely no disrespect to it because I play in a local yeah. men's league too. And there are some fantastic players hundred percent, but yeah, at the end of the day, we're playing for fun. We're paying to play. And by yeah. just, you know, getting a run out and, you know, maybe trying to win a few games. Right. Whereas yeah. these kids are trying to become professionals, right? It's a completely different mindset.
0: It's funny because, like, um U17, they're playing MLS Next Pro. Then U19, mm-hmm. you're playing in this, let's say, beer league. And then the next level is, like you said, League One BC and stuff like that. So I was like, that's a weird, like, uh, a weird, loop, right? weird yeah. loop there. I was like, because, yeah. like, if, if for example, he's playing someone from the Whitecaps U19 in a cup game, it's just like, I know I'm not good as you, so what's the point <laughs> at the same yeah. time? Just
2: like, yeah, well, I, I,
1: you know, well, what happens if, if you know someone, God forbid, has a really late tackle and breaks yeah. a kid's leg, right? Like that, that can time, happen right? easily, like, right?
2: And it's not like the rest are the best, right? The rest are there. We're like we're getting paid. We're yeah. not we're not gonna hear like try to stop fights or anything. We're just like blow our whistle and hopefully you stop yourself.
0: Yeah. Um moving on to the transfer. Last thing with the tra- players related here. You mentioned the depending on the player, um, where they best fit to uh, continue the development, right? You mentioned Alfonso Davies going. From the Whitecaps Academy, you mentioned uh, the NCAA route, the CPL route, because I know someone got selected from the U17. I forget his name. I think TJ Tahid was his name. Yeah. Um, but when now let's say you're at the level where Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, Stefan Stakic, Julia Grosso, um, Kadisha Buchanan, and then them are. When do you think it's the appropriate time? Because of uh, to transfer out of their current club. Now, obviously, not everybody's going to be Alfonso Davies and hit Byron Munich right off the Whitecaps, right? Uh, for example, Jonathan David went from uh Ghent, I believe, Genk, one of the yeah, Yeah, to Lille, and he's been in transfer rumors for the last two years. For example, Man United, Chelsea, Juventus. Um, Mm -hmm. same thing with Tejon Buchanan. So, when do you and Ismail Kone, like you mentioned, when do you think is the time for these guys to transfer from like that to now? Maybe let's tester waters with the Barcelona's the Atletico Madrid's the Manchester cities and United's Juventus AC Milan etc
1: again depends on the player of course but look in the case of Jonathan David I'll use him as as a perfect example his first season at Lille you can even say into his second season at times I think the one thing that clubs might have been a bit cautious about with him was his lack of consistency scoring. Yes, he would get a lot of goals in a season for sure, but they usually came in gluts. They would either come all in the first half of the season, then he'd go cold in the second half, or vice versa. Last year, he finally got that consistency. And you top it off with the fact that he's played in some big games. He's won a title with Lille. He's played in the Champions League. Okay, so he's got that big game experience. He's played in a top five league, check and check. Um, You look at his off-the-ball attributes... You look at his just general tactical IQ, it's off the charts. Like I've seen it firsthand. That guy can press and execute just the best cover shadows in terms of eliminating two players with just one swing of the hips like I've never seen before. Um, You know, things like that, big clubs do look at. So I think when you see a player at that level who I think is very clearly starting to, maybe not plateau, but is starting to show signs of, okay, I'm ready for the next step up that's when you have to make the move. I, I know it's very ambiguous in some cases, but that's where I say maybe Tejan still needs a full season because he's been hurt. It's through no fault of his own, but he needs one full season where he can stay fit and just absolutely dominate in Belgium before he starts getting that move. The fact that the likes of Inter and Atletico Madrid are looking at him already, that's a great sign for sure because they're at least recognizing the talent that's there. They're recognizing the potential that's there and he's a player who you see it in training, super competitive guy always wants to be the best at everything. And that is an infectious feeling to have. And you need to have that mindset to play at the big clubs. So for him, it's, it's just about staying fit and showing that, look, I can play for an entire season. I can play for a big club in Belgium because that does matter. I mean, If you have that pressure week in and week out of having to win every single game, the big clubs look at that and say, all right, he can handle that pressure. Let's see if he can step into this environment and do the same thing. Um, So to me, it's all about meeting that criteria, not necessarily so much on the pitch, but also off the pitch in terms of just, do you have that elite mindset of I can step into this and absolutely thrive and all the outside noise doesn't matter to me.
2: Yeah, that's big. I mean, right now, I'm trying to ask a little fun question here. So we've been talking about the players right now. So based on current form, if you were to do a combined XI of men's and women's, who would be who would be your starting 11 if you were to combine both teams? That's
1: a great question. Off the top of my head, I'd probably go Dane and goal. Um, I just, tremendous goalkeeper all around. I know he doesn't really get to show up much with Minnesota, but really good with the ball at his feet. So he'd yep. be my starter. Um, God, I, I feel like you would have to go, let's assume three-five-two all the way. Um, yeah. The center backs would probably end up being, I would say, Kadisha Buchanan. Um, y- y- you probably go Vanessa Gil, and then I would throw. I do like what Derek Cornelius is doing, so I throw him maybe at left center back. Yeah. Then uh, you go Fonzie is one of the wing backs. is the other wing back. Yeah. Um, in the midfields, you probably go Kone Ashtakio I'm kind of fudging between Grosso and Fleming here, but let's just say for the sake of fit, we'll go Grosso as a second H just because Fleming's more of a 10. So we'll go with Grosso yeah. in there. Up front, you probably still have to go Laren and David just because of what they've done, but it's, it's a really hard question. That's a good question, too. I feel like so many people yeah. have so many different answers as well because yeah, you could still go like, right. you know, you could, yeah, you could go Lefman, you could, like, you could, yeah. yeah.
0: It's funny because I'm like, a- if you combine, because the weakness on one side is the offense, the weakness on the other side is the defense. You just combine uh-huh. it. Will we have one of the top squads in the world <laughs> if we were to play like a uh, Do
1: a co-ed league. Yeah. Do a yeah. national co-ed. Like, do a co-ed World Cup and see how world well we world do. World Cup, right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Let's uh, Let's let's move on to the coaching a little bit here. So, officially, John Herdman has left for Toronto FC. He's starting, I believe, October 1st. Before mm-hmm. we, uh, I ask you if he made the right decision or not, like our thoughts, if you if, then you could just let us know if we were kind of spot on or a little bit off. Like when mm-hmm. we were doing the podcast when this news broke out, um, Jovan and I simply were just like, "Thank you, you got Canada soccer joy back, starting with the women and the men, and we appreciate you all for that. Got us the World Cup mm-hmm. not through the hosting way, like you actually qualified. The Ocho legit, legit Ocho was fun. Like the Ocho mm-hmm. had so much fun watching it, um, but." maybe it was the best time for him to go because, you know, we hear reports. I don't know how true they are. And maybe as a tactician, he can be questionable. Now, again, I know you have a relationship with him as well. So I'm not sure if I'm spot on here and you probably know a little bit more, but I felt like it was the right time to go, but a huge thank you. Like he's the reason why he, we're in this spot anyways. Right. Um, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with some of that?
1: I would agree with most of it. Yeah. Um, Look, end of the day, we we achieved what we achieved in spite of a lack of resources. And it was the culture and the work ethic that John instilled on both programs. Um, you know, we were by far one of the most understaffed uh, programs, at least elite programs in terms of like World Cup caliber um, at the World Cup, you know, even during CONCACAF Nations League, There were some mid-tier federations that probably would have a few more resources than we did. Yet we were able to achieve what we achieved just through the culture that John built in terms of, you know, we can believe we can, um, you know, bridge the gap somewhat by just being the best run staff, the best run program, and, and by just putting in the extra shift every single day. And that is, I think why just spend a day in that environment. You kind of slowly realize how they achieve what they achieved during that qualifying run. Um, But look, we saw it kind of play out in public anyways. And you could see that John was getting frustrated with the lack of resources, with the fact that he didn't feel like he could adequately prepare the team for the 2026 World Cup. And in a lot of ways, he was correct. Um, When you can't get top tier opponents, when you can't get friendlies organized, when you can't um, maybe free up certain budgets to help bridge gaps in certain areas, like maybe beefing up the medical staff or whatever the case, right. Um, that all adds up. Right. And, and you can only turn water into wine so many times. Right. And I think you saw in that U S game, look, that U S game in January you could easily make the case that Canada should have lost that match just based on the amount of players who were missing um, the the amount of talent the u s. had, yet they won two nil. And you could say that they largely deserved it, right? But when you go into that nation's league final and you're dealing with the certain issues that they were dealing with, just resources wise, um, players are at the end of a long European season. A lot of those players were playing every three, four days, dealing with injuries and whatnot. It's going to add up, right? And, and I think that he saw the writing on the wall and realized, look, I've achieved as much as I can achieve now. I'm not going to be able to get the proper resources because I'm, he, he most likely wanted to stay, right? I remember after the, the gold cup quarterfinal, we were on our way back to the hotel after losing to the U S every single one of us in that technical staff van on the way back to the hotel said, we didn't, we don't want to go home. This has been so much fun. We felt just invigorated by everything. Um, So clearly the passion was still there, right? It was just a case of, can I continue to do what I, what I can given the limitations that I have? Um, And the simple answer is probably not in terms of the relationships with players, in terms of, all of that, look, all I can say is that I can only base it on what I saw in a couple of camps. I never got the vibe that he lost the room or had fractured relationships. But again, I don't know because I don't see how he interacts one-on-one with certain players. I don't obviously get the the clear lens into the players because I'm a staff member. They're clearly going to act differently around a staff member than they would a fellow player, right? So I I, I don't know what those relationships were like. But, um, all I can say is that, you know, he definitely achieved great things and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a shame to see him go just from a personal level, but also from a Canadian soccer fan level as well, just based on what he's achieved. But I'm sure he's going to do really incredible things at Toronto FC, especially given that they're at rock bottom. There's only one place to go and that's yeah, yeah. up. And <laughs> he's certainly in a great situation. Um, so in,
0: in your ultimate opinion, uh, did he make the right decision that, you know, what, um, it, obviously it, everything added up it's, it's probably time for me to leave I want a new challenge because there were rumors before that he was going to take the New Zealand job right and mm-hmm. this was before kind of this stuff stemmed out before the World Cup um, do you think he believed that it was the right decision? do you think it was the right decision for him to leave and for Canada in this case that a blessing in disguise to maybe you know what let's start afresh get a new mind in and see how, how it goes from and there and also
2: it's like it's club soccer so it's like it's going to be a little bit different as well type of thing
1: Yeah, and he's been wanting to get into the club game for a long time, I think. Well, maybe not a long time, but certainly it's something he's had his eye on, right? And this is a great opportunity for him. Um, And the fact that Toronto FC is in the situation they're in, it's kind of a seamless transition because in Canadian soccer circles, for the most part, I'm sure, he still has a really, really good reputation. So when he joins Toronto FC it's going to be almost universally positive. And the fact that they are at rock bottom and there's only one place to go means that he's making the transition at the right time, at least in that regard. So I do think that based on the timing, this is something that I think he can use to his advantage because not only does he have all of next season, he has a couple games to close out this season to really get a look at certain players to see, all right, these are the platforms I want to use tactically this is how I plan to play. Can we fill in the gaps here? Who can step up? Who won't step up, et cetera? Who's going to vibe with each other in the room? All these intangibles. So it's, in, in that way, very advantageous timing for him. And I'm sure he's going to make the most of it, as well as all the staff are going to make the most of it with the few games they're going to have entering the offseason, where they will then really put in a lot of hard work, for sure.
0: Um, so... On the search for the Canada job, Mauro Biello, and he's the father of, sorry, his son mm-hmm. is on the U-17 squad, most likely will be selected for the World Cup there. Um, do you believe he should be given the permanent coach status? Because um, I know recently, literally just recently, the news came out that they were trying to hire a soccer secretary, I believe, yeah, and he's he yeah. decision to make the, next, the decision to hire the next coach. Um, we don't know the CPL to be honest with you, and we're very casual MLS guys, we'll bandwagon when the White Caps are doing well. <laughs> um, and um, so, you know, probably the coaches there more because obviously we're not going to get the Carlo Ancelotti's or whoever else big names and be available, <laughs> literally because of financial reasons as well. Who do you think should be the next head coach? And does Maro Bayolo have a realistic shot at being the head coach for future? Um, for example, the potential Copa America qualifiers and Copa America. A nation's
2: league and also are you interested
1: <laughs> wouldn't say no that's for sure yeah. um Mauro, I, I do think has a really good shot because he's been an assistant for the last five years um tactically you know what having worked with him several times now um one of the top if not the top canadian coaches tactically out there so i think that if you want some continuity in that way really good candidate to have and he is a, it's looking like based on the reporting that's out there from Canada soccer, because they have a timeline. They want to get the general secretary in. Then they're going to hire the head coach. He's probably going to get this October window, this November window to qualify for Copa America. And then from there, we'll see. Um, And and I think that that's the right call because you, when you have so many departing staff, you don't want to rock the boat too much. So I think Morrow will steady the ship in that regard. That's great. I know he's interested he's said in that statement that he wants the the job permanently understandably so um, and he'll he'll definitely have a shot for sure outside of him Bobby Smirniotis he's got a good relationship with a lot of the players in the current Canadian setup like Richie Lorea like Kyle Laren he propelled a lot of their careers so from a player relationship standpoint he's going to have a leg up in that regard He's tactically one of the top coaches that Canada has to offer. Um, Some of his in-game changes I've seen have been second to none. Um, He's also a a guy who can be quite, um, you know, at at times very muted. But you can see that he is a hardworking coach. You can see that he is someone who has passion for the Canadian game, who wants the best for the game in this country, much like John does Um, And so just in that regard, you have some continuity there. Outside of him, it, it really depends on who's going to be interested in the job. Like I've thrown several candidates out there, what as realistic or not as they could be like Thomas Christensen with Panama, great tactician. He's a former player. He's played in La Liga, for example, so he could identify with a guy like Kyle Aaron in that regard. The fact that he is a former player, he'll identify with all the players in that regard. And he's a top coach with CONCACAF experience. Hugo Perez, former El Salvador coach, just got fired in September, actually. Um, he's got a great knowledge of the American youth setup, former player for the U.S., former coach at the U.S. youth level, did amazing things with an, with a Salvadorian team that was largely composed of american-born dual nationals so in a lot of ways he's got tools there plus the concacaf knowledge to be able to help maybe propel the national team into the 2026 world cup like the possibilities i feel are endless you do have some good options based on the budget that canada may likely have when it comes to hiring a coach it just depends on who do they see as the right fit and who could come in here and maximize the talent that is going to be at their disposal too
2: Uh, So this is just a fun hypothetical question, you know, like a projection prediction based, but Atiba Hutchinson recently retired. So do you ever see him in the future when he gets a little bit of experience being the head coach of
1: this national team,
2: if he's ever interested?
1: Oh yeah, I could for sure. Yeah. He's, and again, he's kind of one of those guys who's like a quiet leader, you know, he's he's never going to be one to kind of, you know, raise his voice and be that very boisterous leader, but he just leads by example. He's almost like a Sadin in that way. You know, he's he's the guy who's going to, you know, be the first one in the gym and kind of lead by example that way and get everybody else to buy in there. And I think that's why he'd be a great coach. And he is a very smart tactical man as well. So look, if he wants it, he'll he'll certainly be in in, in the running. Um, it would be great to see as well. Because <laughs> when you think of Canadian soccer, at least on the men's side, Atiba okay. is one of the first names that comes to mind. So I think it would be awesome yeah. that way too.
0: Do you think the drama will scare some people away or do you think they'll, especially, obviously the bigger names might, if they have ever had a consideration, but like Mm -hmm. the CPL coaches, for example, and I heard hearing you guys on your guys' podcast, you mentioned some names there. Do you think they'll just, they'll be scared because they don't know what what the hell is going on behind the scenes? Or will they embrace it because this is an opportunity at the end of the day? And if they do well, whether it be with Canada or they could, land a bigger job in a bigger club or a bigger country in the
1: future? Based on the reporting that's been out there, I think it's both of those put together. They see the massive opportunity that's at their disposal in terms of we're at a home world cup. We've already qualified. We've got a bunch of talent here. Um, It's a program that's on the rise, but then also there's the financial uncertainty and how much limitation am I really going to have here? And so that's why there has been reportedly a high level of interest in the job, understandably so, but then they have that caveat of, okay, but what, how far are these problems reaching really? So that's, that's kind of the, the golden question now, right? Because it could really depend like, th- that is what will hinge on whether Canada can get this candidate or this candidate somewhere in the middle in terms of this is like our dream scenario. This is our kind of like low budget option. Are we going to get someone in the middle? Are we going to get someone closer to our dream option? Or are we going to have to get someone closer to that, that bottom end really? And, and I guess we'll find out in the coming months. Um,
0: so before we transition into the woman's game now, um, just to wrap up the Canada soccer or uh, everything related to it, um, Bev Priestman, do you think a, with all this drama, she might follow the John Herdman if, if nothing improves? And B, is she as much in consideration? Maybe she wants the man's job in the future. Who knows? I know her, she's come out and said, I'm not leaving um, before the Jamaica game happened. And she's fully focused on the Olympics right now. But do you believe that if the drama still continues, people get fed up like John eventually did as well. Do you think she'll follow that route of John Herdman as well?
1: It's a possibility, yeah. Um, Because look, as much as you could be invested in the job you're doing as much as you may have really good relationships with the players and, and the staff and everybody involved, there comes a time where you have to think about yourself and say, okay, is this really the ideal scenario to be in right now? And that's the worry here. If you're the Canadian soccer association, it's, can we continue to give our coaches the best possible resources to maximize these teams' potential? And if we don't do it, are we at risk of losing these coaches? So for sure, I, I think it's 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 a possibility. If it continues this way, um, it could be something to to potentially worry about. At least, maybe not leading up to the Olympics, but potentially shortly thereafter, if the problems continue up to that point.
0: What are your opinions of her as a coach?
1: Look, a lot of similarities to Herdman, understandably, because she was an assistant with John on the women's side. Um, She is a very motivational coach. I think tactically, um, you know, she, I think she's starting to get it a little bit more now. Like I remember myself and Alex on our podcast, we have been calling for 352 for the last year or so, maybe even more than that, just because of look, you have a lot of really good center backs. You have dynamic wing backs, got a lot of options in the midfield. You've got forwards who can play as a winger, but can also play up front as part of a pairing or by themselves, whatever they want to do. Um, It just makes a lot of sense in that way. And the fact that she kept persisting with 4-3-3 or sometimes, you know, not utilizing Julia Grosso as part of a trio, but in a double pivot where she probably isn't, the best utilized that kind of makes you scratch your head and go, okay, what is she seeing here? Like what is the reason behind this? And so that's where you maybe have a couple of reservations. Now she's starting to come around in that way. I'm I'm always of the opinion of if coaches show growth, learn from their mistakes, and continue to progress in that way, then you can't fault them for those past mistakes. At least they're learning, at least they're getting better and they're starting to to listen to maybe potentially some of the criticism that's that's coming their way
0: yeah so let's let's get her right into the jamaica game now um obviously they're up to nothing so there should be without jinxing anything uh comfortably in the olympics next year because they're coming home right they got two away goals in jamaica so you mentioned the adjustment what are you so obviously clearly you enjoyed the adjustments you you're you, like you said um were you surprised by that adjustment and that new formation that she did it? And were you surprised by players like Jordan Heidema, um, Christine St. Clair, Julia Grosso, all being benched? And not even like Chloe Lacoste Le- Lacla- started, but you would have thought maybe uh, VNs would have started. But instead, she was also on the bench. And St. Clair was an unused substitute in this game as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I think when you look at some of the injury concerns they had, or maybe the fitness concerns, maybe the rotation policy they had in place, because keep in mind, they have to travel back to Toronto, play another game that comes into play as well. Some players might come into camp with little niggles. So you got to manage things that way. There's a lot of different things that go on. Um, I'm not too surprised that you would have tweaked things tactically, especially given the problems they had creating chances in open play. Um, but the three, five, two looked really, really good in possession for sure. Like you, you were able to free up Quinn a lot. You got the wingbacks getting forward. Um, Adriana Leon was dynamic out there. She was all over the place. She had the freedom to drift across the pitch. Um, it, it was just a lot more incisive and dynamic and, and players seemed to have a lot more freedom. And despite the pressure that was on them, you could understand them maybe sitting back and playing for a nil-nil or even a one-nil win, something like that. But the fact that they kind of kept going, produced 16 shots, seven on target, I think their expected goals. That's the most expected goals they've produced in a competitive game, I think since, God, I think since November. Um, And and that's saying something because that's, I think, a run of seven or eight games in a row. So the fact that they were able to do that against a Jamaican team that was quite solid at the World Cup says a lot. So... For now, I'd be interested to see what happens come the second leg, maybe once other players like Jade Riviere get fit and, and they start to figure into this, if that continues. But there was a lot to like in that game, particularly from an attacking point of view. There's maybe a couple of things in transition they could clean up. But hmm, otherwise, I do think that on both sides of the ball, a lot better compared to what we saw at the World Cup. Is the transition
0: game just your biggest... That's what your biggest improvement is? Because that was not going to be my next question. Is there, or is there anything else um, you have in mind that they should still need to improve on?
1: Really, the transitions are the number one thing. Like look at that Australia game and how many chances they were bleeding in defensive transition, how many players were kind of caught too high up the pitch or just not in the right area. Um, that is still something they probably have to clean up. And look, when you're changing tactics, when you're changing personnel... Um, that's going to happen. It's just a case of getting on the training pitch, perfecting it a bit more. And then if in the next game you see improvements in that regard, then that's all that matters. That would be the one glaring thing though, that I did see that you maybe want to clean up for the second leg and going forward too.
0: So will they close it out Tuesday
1: in your opinion? I think they do. I think they do. Yeah. Getting the two nil was huge for sure. Um, the fact they're going to be at home in front of a sold-out crowd, maybe the pressure's off them a little bit to produce a result. Um, maybe they'll go into that playing with a bit more freedom, and then they end up getting that really just hammer blow third goal. You make it 1-0, 3-0 on aggregate, and then all of a sudden there's no way back. Um, I do think they got the job done, and it's going to be a massive weight, I think, lifted off of not just the players' shoulders, not just Beck Priestman's shoulders – But I think the Federation's shoulders, knowing that they got a sold-out crowd, they got the desired result, they qualify for the Olympics. Okay, we can end 2023, at least on the women's side, on a high note from here on out.
0: Yeah. Um, Last thing with the women's side, unless you have a question. Um, Is it no longer just the U.S. as the powerhouse for the women's side? Because in this World Cup, they obviously didn't go far uh, like they would hope to. Spain, obviously, with all their drama outside of that.
2: But they played well.
0: They're young. They're up and coming. Japan still showed signs. um, Some people may have written them off before. Uh, The European teams, Netherlands, England, for example. Sweden. So it's no longer the U.S. as the perennial favorite in the field, in your opinion, I'm assuming.
1: I would, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, you just look at all the strides that not even the European countries, but some of the South American countries in Mexico are making and just the investment in the women's game, everybody's catching up now. And you can even say that in some cases, like with Spain, England, et cetera, they've passed the U S um, they've got the, the player pool. They got the resources. They got the, the club infrastructure, everything to now widen that gap even more. Um, and I think this world cup proved it. You saw how many different contenders there were for that World Cup. You could have made the argument for, I felt six or seven countries entering the knockout stage in terms of they could legitimately win the tournament. And that's what you want to see, right? You want to see a little bit of parity, but you also don't want to see the same team constantly dominating over and over again. So the fact that all these countries have now at least risen to the US's level and in some cases eclipse them, that's going to make the 2027 World Cup, which will be on US soil. Even more interesting especially as they continue to keep investing money as you mentioned with australia like look at what that could potentially do in four years time right yeah
0: especially with carly doing pissed off (laughs) i got the u.s team who knows this could be a wake-up call for the u.s and maybe even canada because it's no longer canada just dealing with the u.s and it is all these other countries has to
2: deal with everyone um
0: all right let's get into the u.s sorry uh, u-17 world cup a little bit and off-camera, we were talking to you. So we have a little bit, because we, normally we don't really watch unless it's on the TV um, during the day. But in this case, in Indonesia, we will be getting up at 1 a.m. or 4 a.m., whatever local time the game is here. And the reason is, uh, first of all, their group has been announced. So we'll get into that in a second. And I mentioned to you off-camera, we have a cousin on that roster. And mm-hmm. happily, you became a huge fan of him ever since that first, uh, the first qualifier, the CONCACAF championship game. Jeevan, Jeevan Badwell. for those of you guys wondering, we've had him on the podcast before. Um, why did you become a huge fan of his? And we're not, we're, gonna, we're obviously conflict of interest. We're going to just shut up after this question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we don't want him to get in trouble or anything either. But why did you become a fan of his? And then, then how will do you think he will perform and other players will perform that you're keeping an eye on in this World Cup?
1: A great question. And now, I mean, look, you asked me questions about my conflict of interest with so John. Now I am presenting you with a bit of a conflict of interest now. So I guess the shoe's now on the other foot. Um, look, Jivon when I watched him play for the first time in that opening game, the first thing that immediately came to mind was just how alert he is in all areas, right? Like when you are a midfielder, you have to have eyes in the back of your head at times because you have to be scanning the pitch constantly for, okay, when can I receive this pass? If I receive this pass, is this player going to press me from this side? Do I have space to maybe turn and go this way? Um, Once I pass the ball, I have to keep an eye on this man, because if there's a transition the other way, then I got to keep an eye here to make sure that I can at least close down the space. All these things come into play. And he was immaculate at that. You could just see that the tactical IQ was off the charts for a player that age. Um, not to mention the fact he has the technical ability, he has the vision, he has the defensive acumen, the amount of times that Gael Demontini would push forward from left back, he would cover him just seamlessly. It was like they were on the same wavelength. And just things like that that I saw, it made me go, yeah, this is for me, the best player, all-around player that Canada had at the tournament. He was my player of the tournament, simply put, just because of that. And he was playing 90 minutes every other day. Like, that's the crazy thing is that he was still maintaining that level after, you know, literally 24 hours rest and then back on the pitch playing against the U S 90 minutes. Again, no big deal. I'm still playing at this same level. Um, So I'm really excited to see what he can do against some really top tier countries in Mali, Uzbekistan, Spain, Um, obviously provided he gets there, but I'd be shocked if he didn't, he's such a key part of, of what the team does. Um, and hopefully this leads to question or to, to chances with the white caps too, because I know he's been getting many starting opportunities with the next pro side. Um, and the fact that he's still such a young age, who knows? Maybe next year he'll the first team picture the way he's going. Like I, I know that the White Caps are wanting to give more opportunities to their younger players, especially their local players out of their academy. So if he can have a strong U 17 World Cup, continue playing well for the next pro side maybe he gets an opportunity going into next year. Outside of him, I love the looks of Chimari Omizi, the right-sided centre-back that Canada had. Richard Chukwu, who just turned 15, I believe, and he was 14, uh, either 13 or 14, when the CONCACAF under, champ, under 20 championships, or under 17 championships, excuse me, started. He played for the under-15 program like a month ago. Like he was still eligible to play for that youth team. So the fact that he is starting for this team Goes to show you the potential. Um, Alessandro Biello, really good orchestrator in the heart of midfield. Um, there are just so many players on the team that really impressed me. De Montigny is another one. Kyler Voivodic, another one. Um, I, I'm really excited to see what, what they can do in this Brazil camp and then at the Under-17 World Cup. And the fact that we got such a diverse group of players as well, just in terms of their pathways. You got MLS Academy guys, European Academy guys, League One Ontario representation, CPL representation, and then they come from so many different ethnic backgrounds and 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 just multicultural backgrounds as well. It's just it, it's everything you want to see in a in a Canadian youth team. So I, I'm I can't wait to see what what they can do.
2: Yeah, I would say one person that impressed me during those qualifiers is a uh, Stefanovic, the other center back. I felt like yeah. he was just so composed on the ball, and like he was able yeah. to progress the ball up the field. Like I just liked his ability to you know just play the ball as a defender.
0: Do you yeah. believe a lot of these guys have potential to not even just the U-20 to make the senior team early? Not, not specifically to Jeevan, but any, anyone on this um, team as well.
1: Given the dearth of center backs, you probably say those center backs will have a chance if they can get opportunities. I know um, Lazar has signed with TFC and he's gotten some games with the first team and he's actually not looked out of place at all. He's looked pretty decent in some really difficult spots because Lord knows how how poor TFC have played, especially off the ball. So the fact that he's been able to go in there and, and give a good account of himself kind of goes to show you his potential. Um, he'd be one name that I'd look at for sure. Um, Omizi and and Chukwu. DeMontanee possibly could, could figure into the equation. Um, Jivon as well, you know, especially if he can get some first team opportunities with the Whitecaps as early as next year, he could figure into the picture. And the team needs midfielders too. So that could certainly help in in that regard.
0: All right. So just a mini preview here. Um, Thoughts on their group? Now, to a casual fan, they're going to be like Mali and Uzbekistan. Canada's got this, right? Obviously, Spain's there. But, you know, on paper, the name Canada should beat those teams. But people don't realize we were a pot four team. Meaning on Mm -hmm. paper as well, we were the worst out of the four. Um, How good are Mali and Uzbekistan? For those people wondering.
1: Yeah, typically at the youth level, they they tend to be very, very, very good, especially Mali. Um, a lot of the African teams, look, this is a classic case of sometimes the scouting just isn't there where you really untap all of these unearthed gems. Tons of talent in Africa, as we know, right? Some of the best players in the world are from Africa, um, but they wouldn't be where they are if it wasn't for some of the top European clubs opening up academies in certain countries. Um, Mali is one of those countries now that's slowly starting to get a bit more recognition. Again, they were, they kind of had a bit of a boom in the mid two thousands. They're starting to kind of get that way again. Um, so they're going to be a tough out because talent wise, they're right up there. Um, Uzbekistan is the same in terms of they've always got the talent. It's just, there's such an underscouted area that people don't realize the level of player that's there And that's the thing with the under 17 level, everybody's really on par, but what makes the difference is, and I mean, I know this sounds obvious, but sometimes it's just finishing off your chances and sometimes the level of familiarity you have in those squads. And that's where I think Canada could have a bit of an advantage because for this upcoming camp in Brazil, they got a lot of returnees from that under 17 championship sprinkled them with a couple of newcomers. So you got some familiarity building there. You can get two more games together, very advantageous. Um, and that could actually help them come come the World Cup because the talent gap is going to be right there. It's just a question of do we have the chemistry, the tactical framework, and the quality in both boxes to be able to get the job done. Um, Spain,
0: we already know they're a powerhouse in general, but my, mm-hmm. so my, I, I'm assuming that's the game, one of the games they'll probably lose. But obviously, anything could happen. But we know that. But there's a guy in Barcelona, Yamal. Do you believe he's playing on that U-17 team? Do you have any intel on that? Because he's been playing on the Spain first team, right? So we know he's good. He's playing on Barcelona's first team as well.
1: Exactly. I mean, he's eligible. He wouldn't be the first, um, you know, Barcelona-Real Madrid academy player to get those opportunities. Like I remember Gerard de la Feo, when he was coming through at Barcelona, he still got opportunities to play with the under-20s. And he was a regular first-teamer at Barcelona at the time. So it's possible if they see the opportunities in terms of okay he's not going to play at barcelona but if he goes in the under 17s gets that high level experience playing from the under 17s that might be better for his development it could very easily go that way the fact that they are playing multiple competitions again in the champions league la liga copa del rey etc might mean that okay when he gets opportunities it'll be kind of in those games where we have to rotate the squad and then maybe gets opportunities that way but it's still a possibility just given that Barcelona usually have been pretty open about letting their young players representing the youth national teams, even when they become fixtures in the first
0: team. Um. So last thing, um, where do you think they will finish? Uh, do you think they, they, I don't, in history, I don't think they made it out of the group, right? In the U-17, if I'm not mistaken or have they? No, I don't
1: think they have. No.
0: So do you think this is the year? And uh, yeah, how far do you think they could go and at least provide competition if they don't get out of the group?
1: I think they'll be competitive for sure. Like I think that it'll be a case where they, it's going to be very much. I feel like it's going to be like the senior team at at the last World Cup in terms of like they're going to be right there in every game. It's just, is it going to f- finish with them having you know zero points, one point, two points, etc. Um, I could see them getting through. This is probably a decent chance. Um, it's, it's, it's a balanced, but accessible group is what I like to call it in terms of they, they're going to have a tough out in every single game because the, the gaps are so minor, but the fact that you have the opportunity to get a win in one of the games, I think is massive because the stats show you win a game in a 14 group stage, your odds of advancing spike exponentially. So if they can just steal a win in one of those games, it'll happen. And given their prowess on set pieces too, that could actually work to their advantage as well.
0: All right. all right, Peter, we're going to move on to the European. I know we've been going on for a while here, but we'll just make this more of like a rapid fire, quick fire thoughts. Not just European, but we'll start off with the MLS very quickly. Messi, the show. Obviously, we all know Mm -hmm. know that. Um, How has he impacted the league? And I'm probably pretty sure we know the answer to that, but well, whenever he does leave or retire, do you think, is it going to be like the classic when the big names leave MLS? We'll just go back to like a league that nobody really knows until the next guy shows up. Or do you think he's given a, uh, the name the MLS to maybe other players want to join in the future, um, as well?
1: I think you're slowly seeing that. I mean, even just look at all the Argentinians that are now coming to MLS because, Oh, I could play with Messi. Um, And the pipeline to South America has already been there anyways. So I I don't think it will change too much in that regard. But the fact that Messi saw it as an attractive league to join is going to help the reputation. The real key now is, are they going to loosen the salary cap rules enough to be able to get players of this caliber in? Because the amount of top level players in the game who vacation in the U S or love spending time in the U S who would actually play in MLS. If it was a viable option, it would be quite endless, but it's the salary cap and all that that restricts those opportunities. So I think if they can figure that out, then yes, you're going to start to see a mass migration or more of a mass migration of players seriously considering MLS as an option.
0: Especially with the Saudi league, right? Like they have unlimited resources and you've seen the top names go there. Right. Um, Last thing, I guess, a, do you see a Whitecaps ever do something like this? Not saying messy level, obviously. And B, just your original, uh, just your um, thoughts on the Whitecaps in general. So they're on a playoff spot. They've been on a good run. And do you like that they brought in the Canadians? They brought in Adekubi, Richie Larea, Junior and Hoylet. Junior Hoilet. Or do you? And on the player side, the Canadian player side, do you think this was a viable spot for them to develop, or should they have stayed in Europe, for example?
1: All right. I'll tackle that one first. So I think in the case of Sam, he clearly has been going through a lot mentally just because of what happened with the earthquake and Hattie. And he lost teammates. He lost staff members. He lost a lot of really close friends. Um, and he was good enough to stay in Europe, but I think coming home was almost something of a symbol for him. And I understand his home is, is in Calgary, but he came through with the Whitecaps played with the Whitecaps for a few years I feel like that was symbolic in that way for him. Um, Richie is someone who definitely had the quality to go to Europe because he was such a late bloomer that probably worked against him a little bit. Um, But he had the quality. He had the work ethic to stay in Europe, coming back to Vancouver, likely getting a DP contract. And rightfully so he has been an absolutely tremendous player the last four years. It's a testament to everything he has gone through. He very nearly got cut by Toronto FC and would have been on the outskirts of MLS. Maybe could have called it quits four or five years ago. Now he is a key fixture in the national team and he's gonna be on what could be a multi-million dollar contract. Um, and is gonna be one of the faces of the club leading into the 2026 World Cup. So great move for him there. Junior, it's it's a very much a buy-low high reward option because junior is a tremendous locker room guy, still a quality player. Um He's going to instill a lot of that leadership. He's a great mentor for young players too. Uh, so that could help a lot of guys as well. I love the route that they took because not only did they sign three quality Canadian players, they also signed three quality people too. And that's going to really help the culture at the club. Um, they're, they're definitely good enough to make a run in the playoffs. The, the only concerns I would have are, the first one is, are they going to get the clinical finishing they need in, in a lot of these big games? Against Houston and RSL, it hasn't really happened yet. And then defensively, they seem to have a lot of issues. Stop me if you've heard this already on this podcast, but defending in transition at times. And when they then fall behind, the attack has a problem kind of fighting to get back into games. So I feel like if when they play against teams of that caliber come playoff time, those would be the two burning questions for me. But no doubt about it. They have the quality to be able to trouble a lot of teams, maybe make a run. They're top five in the league when it comes to expected goals for, expected goals against, and expected goal difference. So it goes to show you that they can limit the chances that they concede. They produce a good amount of chances, but can they actually execute in both of those boxes, right? That's going to be the X factor for them. Um, They can for sure attract a top level player because Vancouver is a world-class city. Yes, it's very expensive, but With the money that they would be paying said player probably won't be too much of an issue. Um, I would just love to see though, what could have been if that waterfront stadium came, came to to reality, because if you have a world-class venue on the Vancouver waterfront, grass pitch sold out crowds every day, I think that that could have had an absolutely transformational um, purpose for the white caps, because if, if you have, the right facilities, especially with the facility they have a UBC now. Um, so nice that even the Vancouver Canucks are using it in their preseason. <laughs> um, and you have a world-class stadium, grass surface, and a fantastic city to live in, then it's it's got everything you need if, if you're an elite athlete. So I think that they could still do it even with the turf. Um, but that is certainly something that I think possibly could hold back some players from signing in vancouver for sure especially in comparison to a miami and la etc
0: what are your thoughts on the turf versus um grass like obviously the grass is coming for the world cup do you think every team should be allowed should be sorry forced to do the grass um in the mls and i know there's always topics in the nfl regarding this baseball because they do they're on turf as well a lot of the stadiums mm-hmm. but in just sticking to soccer do you think it should be mandatory grass
1: yeah, I, I think so, especially when you look at the money that a lot of these clubs have now. They, they can certainly afford to maintain a quality grass surface. Like, I'll give you an example. So, I'm of Peruvian descent. Estadio Nacional, where the national team games are played, that's owned by the government of Peru. So, public funds go into the maintenance of that stadium. Yes. They host concerts, they host all sorts of events on that grass surface. Now, is it always impeccable? No, but it's still very playable. It's still very decent. And the fact that they're still using public funds in Peru to be able to maintain that surface goes to show you it can be done. So could they do it at BC Place, which is also a publicly owned stadium? For sure. Could they do it with Toronto FC? Yes, they already do. Across the league, 100% they can. And it would really help the quality of not only of the games, but it would also help maintain player fitness too, because there's a lot of unnecessary injuries that come with playing on turf. Uh, all
0: okay, let's move on to the European side of things. So um, we're, Ma- we're Manchester United fans. I'm not sure if you're gonna hate us for that or whatever the case may no, be. Not at all. No. Um, why should we have hope? Because <laughs> uh, this year's obviously started off a little rocky compared to last year. Obviously they started off bad last year, but they got going mm-hmm. on a huge run. Um, I'm not sure how much you've watched with them, but it has been frustrating for sure. Um, yeah. So what are your thoughts on Man United and should we hope that it could be for the better for the rest of the year?
1: (laughs) Look, talk about issues in transition. Um, look, injuries haven't helped at all, especially defensively. Like, I think that's really hampered the start. Um, when you have Luke Shaw go down, when you got pretty much all your fullbacks go down, then you have. Be center backs getting hurt in the middle of a big match, right? It, it, it's never going to be helpful. Um, I do think that they neglected the midfield over the summer for sure. Now they brought in Sophie and That's a great signing. I think he's going to shore up a lot of problems because he really is like a one man double pivot out there. So that's going to help alleviate a lot of problems, but that really is the big issue um otherwise they've pretty much filled in the gaps everywhere else I mean Rasmus Hoyland has looked excellent in his first few games you've got Casemiro who's got that big game experience he obviously can't do it all on his own but you know you can rely on him Bruno Fernandes is one of the top chance creators in the Premier League every single season um defensively when they had everybody fit they had some of the best underlying numbers defensively in the league Andre Onana yes he hasn't shown it yet but last year with Inter one of the top goalkeepers in Italy, when the structure around him is good, just like any other goalkeeper. So the personnel is there, provided everybody stays fit. We've seen that Eric Ten Hag can adapt on the fly. He has instilled a strong culture in there. Um, yes, there are problems with Jaden Sancho and Anthony, which are not related to him, of course, but those are some things you maybe still have to resolve. Not everything's perfect, but I think given what Ten Hag has had to deal with, there, there is still a decent amount of optimism there. I just think it's a case of a lot of things have happened at the wrong time. And you guys know this, when things are bad at Man United, the media piles on, everybody really makes a mountain out of a molehill. That doesn't help either. Um, I I think once players get fit and now that they got a win, I think that was massive for their confidence. Now that they kind of got the monkey off the back temporarily, that could maybe kind of help start to steer things back in the right direction.
0: It doesn't also help when you have a Canada soccer based thing going on there because valenda's are they selling are they not selling and that's then right, you have yeah. like you mentioned the media yeah. thing yeah i know because here here's the thing all of our cousins are man united haters let's just put it that way because they're liverpool fans yeah. arsenal fans etc my mm-hmm. reasoning is we've tormented them so much in the past that you know right. that's why they're all kind of like anything that united does it's like rub it in our face or it's Var- varchester united so that's how yeah, i did yeah, that, yeah. that too but yeah we'll stick with that there um Manchester City, just very quickly, is it still them and everybody else in your opinion? Like, are they? I'm not saying there's a the, we're like the Bundesliga or a league on, but mm-hmm. is it still Manchester City winning the league for you and everybody else thereafter?
1: I think so, especially now that you look at what happened today with Arsenal and Spurs. That's now a four point gap, I believe, between Arsenal and and City. They're ne- their next likely challenger. Liverpool's look decent, but nowhere close to perfect. I don't think they have the squad depth to be able to cope with with a title run in at all. And really the one area that I saw for City that maybe could be a problem was their midfield depth. The fact they signed Mateos Nunez completely solves that, I think, because now they've got three or four solid midfielders they can rotate in and out as the fixture congestion comes. We know they got the depth everywhere else. They got that elite winning mentality. For me, they're they're still the favorite. That would have been the only question I would have had preseason, but now that they've kind of bolstered the midfield a little bit, they've alleviated the one concern that I maybe would have had. Um, let's go to the transfer. Who, in your opinion,
0: is the best transfer and why is it Jude Bellingham?
1: You, you took the words out of my mouth. You know, <laughs> he's making it look like a 100 million euro bargain, which is nuts. Yeah. Because he's, he's 19, 20 years old, going to Real Madrid as an Englishman. You got to learn a new culture. You're playing for arguably the biggest club in the world or at least one of the biggest clubs in the world. All the pressure that comes with it. Carlo Ancelotti adapts tactically to put you at the tip of a diamond, and you've essentially taken over Luka Modric. So that's not easy, right? You've got all these injuries to Vinicius, and and you lose Karim Benzema to Saudi. So you've got a lot of transition there, and you're just single-handedly winning games. It's absolutely crazy. Um, and for me, he's one of the top players in the world now as a result. Because it's one thing to do it for Borussia Dortmund. It's one thing to do it in the Champions League with a club of that level still impressive no doubt especially at that young of an age but to then go to Real Madrid and just seamlessly adapt and he's actually picked up quite a bit of Spanish as well so he's adapting culturally too he he for me is is so far I think the top summer signing and he's living up to the 100 million price tag which some might have thought okay is he gonna wilt under that pressure no he definitely has not he's very clutch
0: um who are some players just off the top of your head? you would like to see request a transfer or get transferred?
1: We'll keep a Canadian. I think Jonathan David is up there for sure. Um, I'd love to see what he can do in the premier league, especially because I think when you look at the amount of fans there are of the league and just the clubs in general, in the premier league, a Canadian going to that league could have amazing repercussions for Canadian soccer because all eyes will be on him you know, it's a lot different to be doing it for Lille and to be doing it for Club Bruges or to be doing it, take your pick, right? Even to a degree, Fonzie at Bayern. I understand he has his Champions League nights and he has his occasional, you know, highlight as well. I mean, he's off the charts right now with the sis. Got another one over the weekend, but it's another thing to be doing that when most soccer fans in this country are watching games in that league. So I think if he were to move there, that would be incredible um outside of him off the top of my head I really can't think of anybody else I I would say that one name that that I kind of wanted to see make make the jump to the next level is even just going to even just moving laterally to another club as well is Jamal Musiala I think he's still one of the most underrated players in Europe and I think the fact that he's doing this for Bayern I feel like it kind of goes under the radar just because Bayern tends to dominate in Germany and the German national team as well isn't really in a great place. So he can't even show it for country either. If he went to a big English club or even to one of the Real Madrid's or Barcelona's, what have you, I think a lot of people would really start to realize, okay, this is a really good player because he was one of the top players of the World Cup, in my opinion, during the group stage. But because Germany were bounced out early, no one really looked at him, but he had a tremendous World Cup and no one really talked about it.
2: He was cooking Man United in the Champions League. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... Sorry, <laughs> Max, for the PTSD. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Uh, your thoughts... Okay, so this is like a topic that kind of started from the World Cup. Your thoughts on the additional injury times that are kind of ridiculous. And at times, I personally believe, because like, it's still in the Premier League, watching Man United games and other games, that I feel like the time isn't correct. Like, sometimes like you think no. it's like, oh, seven minutes. It's like four or ten no. Your thoughts mm-hmm. on that, and then on top of that, you're getting yellow carded very early for wasting time. Mm-hmm. And, Joe, mm-hmm. and I'll that you explained the suggestion you had that we've seen that was rumblings um, about stoppage of time, so you don't have that situation. Like
2: yeah, so it's like basically because they're making a big deal of like, you notice know, time wasting. Like for me, my only solution is like, if you really think it's a big issue, is when the ball goes out of play, like stop it. Like you know, in hockey. You know, if a puck goes out of play, you stop the clock and all that right. stuff. So I was like, that's the only solution I could think of, but at the same time, you know, soccer has been going on this for the whole, for forever. So it's, I don't know how much is going to ruin the game either as well.
1: Yeah, I, I do think that it's many more plausible than we think, because I think these leagues and the Confederations and FIFA in general, I think they're trying to find more and more ways to earn ad revenue. And one way they could do that is maybe by implementing a rule like that, having these ad breaks, even if it's for like a minute, just squeezing in an ad or two and then getting more money that way. So I think for that reason alone, it's still plausible. The rule itself in terms of adding more time to counter time wasting, I can see what they're going for, but when you're already dealing with these top clubs and players who are now essentially playing 70 to 80 games a year, add on the fact that they're playing an extra 10, 20 minutes, to me, it just isn't plausible because then you risk injury.
0: Yeah. And then on top of that, you have to worry about yellow card as well. (laughs) Right? It's like um, you get an early yellow card. Now you have to be careful for the rest of the game, for example. And then you have to go for the appeal process. But yeah, no, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I wonder what the solution would be because like you mentioned injuries are a big one for sure. And some that depends on the squad depth as well. 100%.
1: That really is the only issue. Like if it wasn't for the fact they were playing every three, four days now and had to cram international breaks in there too and everything else, I'd have far less of a problem with it. But I feel like you're only just adding to another problem by doing that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Two things before we finally let you go here. Um, First up, who's winning the Champions League in your opinion? We know Man City on paper are the favorites. Um, For reference, I think Barcelona will be back personally because Jao Felix and Jao Cancelo have been killing it for them. I
2: think I, I pick Barcelona. You pick. I pick City still. I like, I, I kind of cannot pick them type of thing. That's, that's
0: so my situation there. Who do you have winning the Champions League?
1: See, the boring answer for me is City. I mean, I know people have thrown out Bayern. People have thrown out Real Madrid. People have thrown out some of the usual suspects. Bayern, to me, just, I mean, I'm glad to be proven wrong, but I feel like that Man United game sort of highlighted their problems in a nutshell. I feel like at times they can just be so drab, and then when they fall behind, they almost have no way of being able to fight back. Um, and when it comes to teams like Real Madrid, they're kind of in transition. They're still figuring things out. This could be a very different conversation come January, February, if they have locked it down and they start to, you know, perfect that four-four-two diamond and everything else. But to me, City are just so clearly the, the favorites. They have the depth to cope with multiple competitions. And if there's anybody who could do back-to-back trebles, which is kind of nuts to think, it could be yeah. them.
0: Um, last question. Ballon d'Or is coming up. Messi or Holland for you? Who's the winner?
1: Oh, great question. Um, maybe give the slight edge to Holland only because he's done it at the elite club level, and I think that does carry a bit more weight for me, anyways. Because I'm a, I'm a person who kind of tends to prioritize what can you do over a larger sample size. No doubt, Messi had a great year for sure. I mean, he single handedly guided Argentina to a World Cup. That's tremendous right but even with psg the, the numbers are still very good um but you also have to consider the quality of the league that he was playing in you have to consider just the sheer lunacy of holland's numbers going to a new league a new club and just not skipping a beat i think he now has 60 goals and 62 matches for city which is ridiculous like those are messy level numbers um and he's single-handedly bossed it for, over the last year. So I feel like he does need to get consideration um, and, and probably should be the favorite to win the Ballon d'Or just because of that. Take nothing away from Messi, but you, you can't discredit what Holland has done o- over the last 12 months.
0: Yeah, I don't think I would be upset if either, because I had Messi just slightly as well, and I think you did too, yeah. but I don't think if Holland wins, I'd be like, oh, that's ridiculous, right? Now, some people might be Ronaldo <laughs> haters or Ronaldo lovers that, that comes into play, I don't really care about that, but um, yeah. At the same time, it's like pick your poison for me. Like that's yeah, that's, that's the that's the that's the thing. I think it's
2: like whoever wins, like the other person didn't get robbed because they're both so like up there in my opinion. So like it's like if Holland wins, like in my opinion, Messi didn't get robbed because Holland deserves it as much as he does.
0: I think Messi just gets it because of uh, the sentiment. Like this is probably his last ever one. I think that's what will end up happening. That's just me um but i don't think that's the right way either so i i just personally think messi will end up winning it i guess that's that's my way of thinking i i, I
1: could see it like i could see it as kind of like the one last hurrah being like all right messi here's your sayonara to your european career like and I, you know what i have no problem with it either to be honest
0: yeah um okay so before we officially close it out peter we appreciate you so much for coming on i know this went was- over 2 hours it flew like i didn't expect it to be it did. Yeah. 2 yeah. hours <laughs> But uh, we will, uh, we want you to promote your podcast and where could people find you? Um, yeah.
1: For sure. Yeah. Well, also guys, thank you for the invite, open invite anytime. If you want me back, uh, I'll be in Vancouver a couple times over the next few months. So if you have an in-person studio, I'll be happy to pay a visit too. Um, I'm always happy to join. Um, as for my work. Yeah. Follow Northern football on Twitter, Instagram, all socials. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Apple or Spotify. Leave a rating, review if you enjoy the show. We're also open to feedback, so if you have some word, words of advice for us in terms of what you want to see, we're always open to it. And as for myself, you can follow me on Twitter slash X or whatever it's called now, uh, at Galindo PW, where I tend to tweet about all sorts of musings related to to soccer. Um, so if you are into that sort of thing, give me a follow on there as well. And check out my work on Sportsnet One Soccer. Um, pretty much any site where you want to consume some content.
0: Um, yeah, all links will be in the description down below. Um, and other than that, we appreciate everybody watching. And we'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. Peace.